Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski will be interviewing Oliver Smith, owner of Oliver Smith Jeweler in Scottsdale, Arizona. Hi, everyone. This is Victoria Gamelski, editor-in-chief of JCK, JCK Online. Welcome to The Jewelry District. I'm here with my co-host... Rob Bates, news director of JCK and JCK Online. And we've got a special guest today. His name is Oliver Smith. He's the owner of Oliver Smith Jeweler based in Scottsdale, Arizona. And they just opened a second location in Aspen on July 4th weekend. So we've got lots of questions for Oliver. So Oliver, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure to, to have you on today. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. First of all, you're based out of Arizona. You know, we see a lot of things on the news. You want to kind of talk about how things look from your perspective? Absolutely. We kind of shut down. We not kind of, we did shut down for a week before the state mandated that we close because there was so much uncertainty that we just decided to take a week and wrap our head around what was going on. And then when we came back, we're going to start up again on Tuesday in late March. And then that night, the governor shut everything down. We happen to have a pawn license. So we were considered essential because of our pawn license. So we were able to stay open. And we had about six to seven appointments a day for about three weeks. And then the state opened up again. And uh, over Memorial Day weekend, we think maybe it got a little bit out of hand and too much commingling, not enough distancing. And so we got this large spike up the last few weeks. And then a week and a half ago, the state came back and said, you know, we're going to shut down the bars and we're going to shut down the gyms again. And we're going to try to take our time on this reopening to take a little step back. And our clients, we noticed that our clients also took a little break and we weren't that busy for a few days and we're still kind of quiet. So I think the general public is doing the right thing. I see everybody wearing masks and I think everyone is trying to be their best citizen in this regard. So we're, we still have anniversaries and birthdays and big events, engagements that people want to come and see us for. So while our transactions are down, maybe 20, 30%, our sales are staying pretty firm. Wow. I mean, that's really pretty remarkable, I'd say, given how dire it seems there. You know, when, when people come in, are all the employees masked? I mean, do you have to sort of make a big demonstration of how clean the store is? I mean, is that you find pretty key to getting people to feel reassured when they shop with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we don't necessarily wear masks around each other as much as we probably should, but we definitely put them on when a client comes in. And in the past, before the spike, we would only wear a mask if a client had a mask on. Now we put masks on all the time. And the clients seem to appreciate that. We have a sanitizer out on the counters. We clean off the counters, the cases. We don't have to worry so much about social distancing because we have different sections of the store where we can put people in and they can kind of work from a desk in a different spot. And that seems to work real well. But I think people are, you know, if they have a concern, if they have a pre-existing condition or somebody that they don't want to get infected, they're not coming out, but otherwise they're out and about. Okay. So you've been in the business since, I guess, 1981, correct? You want to talk about how you got started, why you got interested in jewelry and how you came to own jewelry stores? Sure, Rob. I started selling jewelry out of my sock in 1981 in New Jersey. 
When I got out of college in 1979, Carter was the president. Interest rates were 19%. There were no jobs. The only job I could find, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, was with the casino. So I went down to be a roulette dealer and a craps dealer, but I really didn't like it. And my sister had started selling gold chain on the side in California. So I sent her a couple thousand bucks. She sent me some gold chain. I rolled it up in a black roll, as we're all familiar with, and stuck it in my sock. And when I went on break, I rolled my chains out and people would walk by because dealers have a 20 minute break every hour. And they'd be like, what are you doing? And uh, that's how I got in the business. I moved to California like two months later to join my sister. And then my niche at that time was to sell on-site with corporations. I mean, it was kind of the beginning of the discount era for jewelry, whereas you know a lot of jewelry stores in the early 80s weren't discounting yet. So that's how I got in the business. And I moved to Newport Beach onto Balboa Island and I sold where there would be a lot of visitors and stuff like that. Little boutiques or would you just be out on the street or how would, how would it work? No, I'd rent like a banquet space in a hotel for just the day. And I might be at the Disneyland Hotel for a day. And then the next day I would be at the Newport Beach Marriott for a day. And then the next day I'd be at the St. Regis in La Jolla. I know. <laughs> Sounds fun, but so busy. So hard. It's so hard. I can remember listening to Zig Ziglar tapes in the morning, trying to get myself motivated because I just didn't want to be a failure. I just wanted to succeed at this venture. And in 1983, I opened up a small boutique on Balboa Island with my sister, who was my partner at the time. It was only about 300 square feet. The problem was that everybody that was on Balboa Island was from somewhere else visiting. And if you were selling t-shirts, that was great. But jewelry, you'd get to know these people and they'd go back to Minnesota after vacation was over. You weren't building your business. So I had a disagreement with my sister. I wanted to move off the island and she wanted to stay on the island. And so I said, okay, I'm going to take my inventory and I'm going to go to Scottsdale because the premise for me was that Arizona was growing. Scottsdale had 55,000 people at the time and everybody was from somewhere else. So they didn't have a jeweler. They didn't have a doctor. They didn't have a dry cleaner. They didn't have a butcher. You know, they needed to get all this stuff and they would get it by getting references from their neighbors. So I thought, you know, this would be a good spot for me to grow my business. I'd been coming into town for a couple of years with my road show, if you will. So in 1985, I opened a store in Scottsdale, and that's where I've been ever since. When we'd spoken a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was even three or four weeks ago, and I know that you started out primarily doing jewelry, and were watches sort of a secondary element? Because I know that you talked about that mix of merchandise sort of shifting very recently, but tell us a little bit about the mix that you focused on and when you started to see things shift. So when I first opened my store in 85, there was still a lot being written in your publication and other ones about, is the Swiss watch industry going to be able to survive? Because in the 70s, when it came out with these quartz watches, it kind of centered on the demise of the Swiss industry. So it was a little confusing to, especially me, who was just starting out, do I really want to get into watches? Is this really a field that's going to take off again? And probably by 89, 90, 91, they started to really take off again. And, that, and that's when I started thinking about getting into the watch business more. Meanwhile, I'd always had a jeweler on site that I could make things with. So 
When I saw the shift to watches, I quickly moved into augmenting my business with watch sales. There was not a lot of product available. There was, you know, only certain pieces. You had to be in a certain spot. So it was a little tough to get certain brands. But I think my first watch brand was maybe Raymond Weil. But then I kind of worked around. I got Cartier and that kind of put me on the map when it came to watches. The way you tell it, you just kind of fell into it with, you know, you're working with your sister. But over the years, have you kind of developed a love for jewelry and watches? Like what kind of keeps you sustained in this business? I think over the years, what's kept me sustained in it is because I have this this appreciation for beautiful things. And about 15 years ago, I took an industrial psychology exam with all my staff. And one of the things that was really interesting was almost everybody here just loves being surrounded by beautiful things. So for me, aesthetically, this was really a great business. And I had also had an older brother who was a woodworker who did a lot of my custom furniture in my stores. And I would work with him and I would sit around the dining room table when I was young and listen to my father talk to him about how to price your manufacturing. And that really allowed me to understand if I'm going to make a piece of jewelry for Mrs. Jones, you know, how am I charging, how much for my time, for the electricity, for the materials, all that stuff, which is kind of tough to learn. I was able to get a head start on that, having sat through a lot of family conversations about how to charge for a piece of furniture. So you said you started off with jewelry and, and you kind of switched. Was that a result of kind of the change in your business model or change in demographics or change of what you saw in the market? It's totally a change of what I saw in the market. I was driven by market influences more than anything else. I mean, I had a young family. I was trying to survive. I just couldn't sit around and make jewelry all day long and hope that I would be, you know, selling it by the bucket load. I, I had to find things that my clients were looking for. And sometimes that has to do with a particular price point, And then other times it has to do with a particular style. So you adapt to what the market is. I'll tell you a little story about a about 20 years ago, I decided that I had to be open on the Sunday before Christmas. And I really never opened on Sundays. I was always closed. But I thought, you know, this is pretty important because it's so close to the holidays. So I told a couple guys, I told a bunch of people, you could pick your piece up on Sunday if you want to. I'm going to be open. I don't know if I'll have much business, but I'll be here. And they drove up in these amazing cars. And I was like, I didn't know you had a Ferrari. So I had had some cigars there. So I sat around, sat out front, smoked the cigars with some of these guys. There wasn't that much business. And everybody was more relaxed. The guys were much more casual. Now it's an event that I do every year. It's called Cars and Cigars. And it's the last Sunday before Christmas. And it's the third largest day of the year for us on average. So sometimes you turn the lemon into lemonade because you just, you know, I had to be open on that Sunday. But that's kind of how I work. I'm a little bit of into marketing, a little bit into design, a little bit into growth. It sounds like you've done that during this pandemic as well, because when we spoke a month or so back, you talked about sort of tripping into this world of Zoom auctions and sort of selling a lot of your pre-owned watch and, and even some jewelry inventory through Zoom, which I thought was really interesting. How did that come about? Well, it was really cool the way that it happened for me because I was on a Zoom call with a charity I work with in Scottsdale, 
And I noticed how you were able to click on different people. You could direct message different people on the call. And it was really fun. It was kind of interactive and I enjoyed it. And a week or two later, I woke up and I thought, man, I I could probably have an auction on Zoom. Because one of the things that I really struggle with is how to run a sale. As I've grown in this business, sales have become much less interesting for people. And we all have gone into the dress shop and gone to the back and find the sale rack. And obviously, there's a reason why that stuff's on sale. And it's the same thing in the jewelry business. It's like last year's designs or pieces that have been sitting around for a while. I thought, well, let's try this Zoom. So it was on a Tuesday and I said I wanted to do it on a Friday, which basically made my staff crazy. But we had to take the pictures, Photoshop everything within two days, get all the product up. And then we had to send it out to our clients mainly by text because we wanted to really let them know this thing's going off tomorrow and we're going to sell 62 items Friday afternoon at two o'clock on Zoom. And it was really fun. We interspersed watches and jewelry. We had half and half and we sold about 90% of it. We raised a little bit under a quarter of a million dollars in about an hour and 45 minutes. So that was the first week. And then I decided, you know something, let's do this again. Boom. So we're going to do it again because of COVID and everybody's at home and nobody could go out. So we ran another one the second week. And the second week we did just watches. We sold up to 40,000, I think was the top price. And we got rid of some pieces. So we were a little concerned that some of the pieces prices were going to come down after COVID. There'd be people selling their watches. So rather than chance that we decided to get rid of some really, really popular pieces. And hopefully if we wanted to buy them again, we'd be able to buy them for less. That's what the theory was. And people were comfortable with Zoom. They knew enough about how to be on this kind of new platform to to make bids. And you were the auctioneer, I take it? Yeah, it was pretty humorous, you know, but that's what made it cool because I ran the auction and sometimes talk about the gems. And then when it came to jewelry, we've set up three cameras and then we had a model on one of the cameras too that we were able to showcase it. And then we had a light box for one of the cameras. So that's how we did it. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews is what helps make them possible. Help spread the word. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jeweler District on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And now, back to the show. One of the things we always hear about jewelry is that people like to see it up close. They like to touch it. They like to feel it. Has that proven a barrier for these kind of sales? I mean, how do people react? Do they feel they're getting the whole experience? Yeah, I think that's a, that's what I learned from it was that next time I'm going to do it, I'm going to give them three weeks to come by the store, just like uh, Christie's or Sotheby's would do it where they have a preview and you can come by and try it on and look at it and feel it, touch it, look at the color, look at the style, how it fits on you. We didn't have time to do that because of COVID. And um, I think that that would make more sense. So next time I'm going to do it, it's going to be a bigger lead up and probably, you know, more items and higher prices because I think people will be able to preview better. In terms of other technologies, because I know you've also talked about adding a chat function to the site recently, right? Sometime in the midst of this lockdown. It sounds like you're really, I mean, you mentioned making lemonade out of lemons. It sounds like you've really done that this past season. I mean, tell us, how did that chat idea come about? Yeah, you're now seeing it all over. 
even from two or three months ago, I didn't see it that much. But the platform we use is Podium, it's called. And they had come to us six months ago about this chat feature. And I was like, no, we don't need that. You know, it wants to spend another $2,000 a year or whatever it was. So we decided that we wouldn't do it. And the other thing is you got to have somebody on the end of that chat feature that gets the text, knows a little bit about everything and can respond in a timely manner. And and sometimes that's difficult if you're asking an employee to do that. But I actually have a young man who's 30 and he's on his phone all the time. So when they came back around to us and said, listen, we wanna give you this chat feature for free because we're so convinced it's gonna be good for you. We decided to do it and we asked Ryan to be our point man on it. And we were really blown away by the response. We sold $60,000 in watches the first month. You know, we sold a watch to a guy in Alaska that we never would have met or never would have been able to do anything with if it hadn't been for that chat feature. And obviously, you know, people understand that business is going to be down during COVID times when you're shut. But has this kind of mix of tools been able to uh, really help keep you going through all this? Yeah, we're kind of level with where we were last year at this point. Well, that's good. Yeah. And the, the top end of the business is still pretty strong. So every year over the last two or three years, we've been slowing down in transactions, but we've been going up in sales. So I don't know how to overcome the less transactions. I think it maybe has something to do with Amazon attacking us on that lower level price point. But, you know, this is how we have to adapt. I mean, we have to be able to be the expert in the bigger pieces and the more important buys. And you've also, I mean, done something that I think a lot of jewelers might have pulled back the reins on, but you opened a second location just last weekend, right, in Aspen with and your daughter is, is running it. I mean, those plans I I know or I take it were in place long before COVID came along. But how did you sort of get through the first six months of this year leading up to the opening? Did you ever consider holding back? Yeah, it was uh, somewhat interesting in that we took over a boutique for Panerai in Aspen two years ago. And it was a two-story boutique that had 700 square feet on the first floor and then 700 square feet on the second floor. And And at the time when Panerai built it seven years ago now, they thought that the upstairs would be um, kind of a lounge area or a library. Through experimentation, we realized that, you know, what this could really help us with upstairs is maybe a pre-owned watch business. There's nobody doing that in Aspen. And one thing that always struck me was, even when I first started out in the business, is that... When somebody's on vacation, especially in a very wealthy area, like you'll see it in cruise ships a lot. Why are there 15 jewelry stores at every cruise ship stop? Well, the reason is, is that a lot of these individuals, families are working so hard to provide for their families and such that when they finally get on vacation together, they go, you know something, let's go spend a little money on ourselves. Let's buy a little something for you and I'll buy something for me. And so they have a chance to shop. So I thought, you know something, maybe we should put 
our Oliver Smith store upstairs and brand ourselves up there because what we can do is we can try different things and different combinations of jewelry, watches, manufacturing, memo goods, whatever we feel that until we get to a combination that's correct. And, you know, this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. So, for, of course, we didn't want to open during COVID. That timing couldn't have been worse, but we worked around that and we were still able to open so I'm not looking at it as a you know six-month thing or a year thing or even a three-year thing. I'm looking at it as a 10-year commitment to that marketplace. So that made it easier for me to justify continuing to move forward because I do think that it's a wonderful place and it's a beautiful town. And that's what makes it reasonable to move forward at this point. So now you've been open, you were closed, you reopened, and now it's kind of trickling down a little bit, the latest bad news, anything you kind of taken, you know, how to do differently through all this stuff, you know, anything you learned through this whole crazy thing that you, you think is going to maybe influence how you do business in the future? I think that one thing that just is constantly happening is that this change is constant, but not only is change constant in that sense, but when you decide to get involved with something and to do something well, you got to jump on it today. I don't think you have the luxury of taking your time and planning it out in six months to a year to do like, you know, Zoom auction or something. You got to jump on it right away, right when it presents itself and put all your resources towards it. So, you know, that that's the biggest thing I've learned from it is that if you wait Somebody else will jump on on ahead of you. It'll lose some steam. And when the school of fish are swimming in one direction, you got to jump on that and get into that stream and be relevant with that. Because if they change on you and you know how a school of fish can change so fast, then you're going to be like, where'd they go? So that's the biggest difference I've noticed is the effort has to be quick and efficient. And you're a first generation jeweler, which is relatively rare. I assume you see a future here because we see, you know, so many of the older, like fourth and fifth generation jewelers starting to think, well, maybe I should get out of this. But obviously, I assume you see a future in the jewelry. It's interesting you ask because I also say to my kids, look, here's how you read a P&L. Here's how you understand. Here's how we're building this business. But if you want to open up a... Uh, you know, a crumble cake shop franchise and want to put 200000 into that and try something new, let's do that. I mean, I don't think that you have to limit yourself as a family to your family business. My feeling is that if you have an asset and your asset is performing well, then I tell my kids, you don't have to get in the family business. If you want to do something else, then you come to the family and let's talk about it and let's figure out what you want to do. And, and maybe we'll use the family asset to help you in that business. So for me, it's too late. You know, I'm not going to try to do something new and different. I like this business. I like my relationships that I have with these clients. I appreciate the trust that they put with me for important occasions in their life. But if my family's not going to be able to appreciate that the same way I am, then they should not get in this business. I'm sure they appreciate that sort of lack of pressure, you know? Yeah. Any other thoughts you want to give to the industry? You know, we're, we're all going through this together. Any things that you really feel that you've learned or you want to share? 
Well, I think the most important thing to remember is that we will get through this and that even though sometimes it doesn't feel like you want to get out of bed, you got to remember that in order to appreciate the peaks, you got to go through the valleys. Thank you for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Katie Clifford, co-producer alongside Kathy Passero. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time for The Jewelry District by JCK. Thank you.